Hey, Mads. Hey, Charlie. How are you? I'm really good. How are you doing? Yeah, I am brilliant on this fine World Oceans Day. I know, it's like the best day ever. It is the best day of the year and the best day to launch a podcast that celebrates the epic women in the ocean science community. Yeah, really couldn't think of a better way to market and celebrate it. And we've been working so hard four weeks on this. And so it's so exciting to finally be able to share it with everybody. Yes, it has been the ultimate adventure, the ultimate adventure. So Charlie and I, I I reached out to Charlie. I can't, oh gosh, it must have been about three months ago now to say, hey, Charlie, I've got this idea. Would you like to jump on a podcast with me and interview women about their scientific papers? Um, And Charlie was immediately like, yes. (laughs) I literally didn't even take a second to to think about it. I was like, yes, absolutely, 100%. I don't care that I probably don't have time for this, but you know what? We're doing it. We're going for it. And it's just been amazing. And I've loved every second. Yeah. And that's the funniest thing is that we have been up at the crack of dawn. We've been up late at night interviewing the most diverse range of marine scientists from across the world. Um, And it has been such a fun time and a bit gushy here, but I can't think of anyone that I would rather do this with. Oh my God, stop it. I would think exactly the same. I feel like we loved each other before, but we truly and utterly love each other now. I mean, there's not many people that you will get up at seven o'clock in the morning for religiously day after day and still be able to speak to and still, you know, be on good talking terms after so many podcasts. Oh gosh, I totally agree. Um, And, you know, it's been a fascinating journey to learn not only about you, but also about the fantastic guests that we have coming on and everyone who has joined us on the podcast has been absolutely fantastic and has brought so much on. So we are so excited for you all to listen. Um, And before we jump in to the first episode today, I think it would be a good time as well to share a little bit about ourselves and who we are um, and, and our experience in marine science. Why us? I mean, like, ultimately, it's like, why have we done this? Because we're both, you know, marine scientists that, you know, have a passion for the ocean. And as women in science, you know, we have had our own journey through this field. And we wanted to share the experiences of other women. And we wanted to amplify their work. And, you know, so a little bit about me for anyone that doesn't know me. My name's Charlie, um, as Mads introduced at the beginning, in case you forgot my name by now. Um, (laughs) And I am a marine scientist and, you know, passionate science communicator. I'm all about not only going out there and doing awesome research, but also finding creative ways to engage people um, and to communicate conservation issues. And I've also now just recently launched an organisation called Saltwater Britain, which is all about taking people on ocean adventures with impact around the UK. Um, And yeah, I'm obviously, as I said, a woman in this field who has had their own experience trying to pave a, a way and a career in marine science. And it's it's not always easy, as we've heard with some of our guests. But Mads, it'd be great as well for you to tell everyone at home about all the amazing stuff that you've done in your <laughs> background. Go on, tell us, girl. Well, I love how you just put it, 
paving your own way in marine science and I think that's part of one being a scientist and also being a woman um, and for me it has very much been you know trying to find my role in in marine science and um, becoming that hybrid between scientist and communicator so a little bit about me and my background my name's Mads um, and I am the founder of Women in Ocean Science um, and I founded the organization back in 2018 um, and it's been kind of this incredible roller coaster ever since working to as Charlie said amplify, amplify and elevate the voices of women in such a diverse range of marine sciences from across the world um, but my own science background, I am a tropical marine biologist and I've been very lucky to work in some incredible places across the world um, and have some incredible experiences. Um, and it was during this time that I also evolved into a science communicator, uh, podcasting, video, photo, you name it. I've, I've had a crack at it. And yep. here we are today trying out something a little different um, and, it's just evolved into the most fantastic thing, so. It really has, and we're just so excited to start sharing our episodes. It's probably about time that we jump in with our first guest. Yep, let's jump in. Welcome to the Women in Ocean Science podcast, hosted by me, Charlie Young, and me, Mad St. Clair. We're two marine biologists on a quest to elevate the voices of our fellow female scientists. Each week, we'll be diving into a new and exciting piece of research authored by a leading woman in marine science. From fisheries biologists to chemical oceanographers to PhD students and researching mamas. We'll be hearing from the pioneering female researchers of today to put a new spin on scientific publications. And smash down some gender stereotypes in the process. So tune in every Monday for a podcast that champions the research of lady scientists and shines a positive light on the work being done to protect the ocean. Today for our very first Women in Ocean Science podcast episode, we're joined on the podcast by Dr Imogen Knapper, a marine scientist working as a research fellow at the University of Plymouth here in the UK. Imogen's research focuses on understanding the different sources of plastic pollution into the marine environment. And today, Imogen's research has been highly influential, having helped drive the ban of microbeads in cosmetics internationally. Imogen has also worked as an expedition scientist on the National Geographic Sea to Source Ganges expedition, investigating plastic pollution in a major river system. And Imi's here today to chat about her most recent research papers, which explore this microplastic pollution right from mountaintops downstream to the sea, and also earned her a Guinness World Record along the way. Imi, we are delighted to have you here for the first episode of our podcast. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm really well, thank you. How are you? Very good. It's been a good day. It's been a great day. It's nearly Friday. Whoop, 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 whoop. <laughs> and most importantly, we are here with Dr. Imogen Napper, and we will be discussing not one, not two, but three of her brilliant papers about microplastic pollution today. 
um, and possibly the most interesting paper of all, even though it's technically not marine related, but we have made an exception for this podcast, is Reaching New Heights in Plastic Pollution, Preliminary Findings of Microplastics on Mount Everest. Imi, give us a quick abstract-like podcast summary of this paper. So like you said, it's quite a weird one. My whole career has been really focused about the ocean and marine-based plastics. But my boss uh, sent me an email saying, how would you feel about getting some snow samples from Mount Everest? And I honestly thought she was joking. I think I replied back in the email like, oh, very funny. Yeah, absolutely would love that. And then lo and behold, a few weeks later, we were actually designing the methodology for a National Geographic expedition team who were out there at the time doing other science to collect some samples for us. But the scary thing was that in every single snow sample, we found microplastics. Uh, with Mount Everest, there's, it's always been known in the last 10 years that it's been covered in debris and other sources of plastic because it gets very heavy to carry all of that equipment. So a lot of people just ditch it when they're near the top to make it themselves lighter. But no one had ever looked at microplastics before. But unfortunately, we found it throughout the mountain. Gosh, it's crazy. I mean, what was it like to be the one to publish this first paper about microplastics being found on Everest? I mean, as you said, it started off as a, is this for real? I mean, what does it feel like now? It feels quite weird, especially because I wasn't there. The closest I got was my lab in Plymouth, but getting samples <laughs> delivered was still really exciting. So you feel quite far removed from it. So when I was doing the samples in the lab, I honestly had no idea what we were going to find. And I thought that the samples near the top, near the summit, we wouldn't find anything. So it really opened my eyes and it surprised me that even somewhere that I consider to be properly remote and pristine, we're finding microplastics up there. So it was a big eye-opener for me. Honestly, Imi, I have so many questions because as you say, you know, Mount Everest is about as remote as it can get. It's so difficult to access and obviously takes an entire expedition team and a lot of training to get there. So, you know, I kind of want to pick your reins, first of all, of like, how do you think plastic is getting up there? As you say, it's really far away from anything. So what is the cause of this pollution? So when we were trying to think about how microplastic was getting up there, there were loads of different thoughts that were going through our head. There's been some amazing research by the scientists looking at plastic fibres coming from our clothes and that they can potentially travel thousands of kilometres. Because even as we're sat down doing this podcast recording right now, I'm actually wearing a polyester jumper. So as I'm just talking to you and moving my arms, polyester fibers are going to be coming off the jumper and just going off into my living room. If you think about what dust is, it's basically just dead skin cells and fluff, probably from our clothes and our carpet and our sofas. But what we predict is in a similar way, when the climbers are going up Mount Everest, the clothes that they wear are shedding microplastics, the ropes that they're using are shedding microplastics, the tents that they're using are probably shedding microplastics. What we found was really interesting so in Everest Base Camp, where most people spend a considerable amount of time gearing themselves up for the big climb, we found about 70 microplastics per litre of snow. But even towards the summit, 
Uh, so we didn't go right at the summit. That's because it was unfortunately the time where there was quite a long queue. So people were dying. So they went slightly below somewhere called Mount Everest Balcony, which mm. about 200 meters below. And we were still finding about 10 microplastics per litre of snow there. So it's almost like wherever humans go, because plastic is so ingrained in our life, we're just leaving a trail of plastic breadcrumbs, you could say. That's really interesting. And what do you think the likelihood is of microplastics being airborne and having travelled up to the top of Everest? Is that something that you're considering as well? Or do you think it is just from um, the climbers and the people who are reaching Everest on foot? I think definitely it's an element. I think it's probably going to be a mixture of both. It's the climbers that are going up there and the gear that they're using. But just how much plastic's ingrained in our life and from potentially nearby cities to Mount Everest, the fibres can travel thousands of kilometres. And with the really strong wind system that's, and the weather systems near Mount Everest, it's definitely a possibility. I was going and, to um, say, sorry, oops. Mads, jumped in on you, you go. No, no, I was just going to say, um, and the, what, what kind of types of fibres were you actually finding up there? Was it just fibres? Were there um, different types of microplastics? What, what were the polymers as well that you were finding? So we mostly found like polyester, acrylic and uh, nylon, which are polymer types that you would typically expect people that are doing an expedition on Mount Everest to be wearing. Uh, especially for outdoor gear and tents and ropes. But we mostly found fibres, um, which again is characteristics of it coming off clothing. We found a couple of fragments, but nothing major. But yeah, mostly fibres. But with the scientific literature that's going out with plastics at the moment, a large proportion is fibres that we're finding. Mm. And am I right in thinking that microfibres are the most abundant form of plastic pollution out there? I would definitely say it's it's definitely up there. That we're still finding out so many different sources of plastic, and it's such a quick moving research sphere to be in. Such as tire particles are being predicted to be one of the worst causes of plastic into the environment. We've got fibers from clothes. Mm. We've got fibers being washed. So when we're washing our clothes, fibers are coming off. When we're wearing our clothes, fibers are coming off. It's something I'm really interested in at the moment as well is when we're wearing our shoes and we're just walking around how many plastic particles are coming off from just wearing our shoes so I think there's so many new sources still yet to be discovered um, which is quite scary. Wow I mean yeah I don't, I don't even give a second thought I guess to how many fibers I could be shedding every single day or even every single second because as you say we're covered in plastic these days everything from literally head to toe so now let's move on to a bit about what I think is one of the coolest parts of this story, um, which is the mad method that you uh, that you had, well, the team that was out there had um, of transporting these microplastics down the mountain. <laughs> so these samples had the most VIP treatment ever. Um, they were helicoptered off the mountain. They were carried by some amazing expeditioners that were going towards near the summit but I, I my science I always joke with my friends about is proper blue peter I think sometimes having the most <laughs> simple methods is one the most cost effective and two if you keep it simple then you can still get some really great results so I ordered loads of just 
water bottles, metal water bottles from Amazon, delivered them through post to the team that were going to Mount Everest. So this uh, expedition team took loads of metal water bottles up towards near the summit and using a metal spoon, put loads of snow in them, send them back to me. And that's how I got the samples. And if we were on camera right now, I'd show you because I, I use one of the water bottles as um, an actual water bottle now and I'm holding it. <laughs> I love that. Waste not, why not? Yeah, it says Mount Everest balcony on it and the date. So it's travelled, this little water bottle. <laughs> wow. I don't think many people can brag that their water bottle has been to Everest and then come back with <laughs> samples that have then been processed and you're drinking out of it. I mean, that's a story and a half for a water bottle. <laughs> that really is. And I'll tell you what, Imi, we'll um, we'll put that in the cover picture. You That that picture of you in the lab with you and the, the water bottle that says Everest on the front. We'll have that as the podcast cover photo so that everyone can, uh, can get to experience the magic of the Amazon water bottle that carried down the first microplastics from Everest. <laughs> I love it. But Imi, I have a quick question, actually, because, you know, whilst it's a really shocking finding that, you know, we're finding plastic on the top of Everest, you know, microplastic pollution in our oceans is you know, can be extremely detrimental. But is there actually any impact of potentially having plastic on Everest? I mean, it's really remote. You know, is there any wild up, wildlife up there that it could be impacting? Or is it just mainly a finding that, look, plastic is really widespread and we need to be aware that it's it's everywhere? Yeah, it's, it's a weird one because it's shocking because it's like, oh my goodness, microplastics are near the top of the tallest mountain on Earth. But at the same time, it's also not that shocking. It's it's kind of two things. And we know that plastic is polluting our our earth, our oceans in tremendous amounts. So we don't fully know the impact that it has. And we're getting some scary scientific papers coming through about potentially how it could affect our health. I saw a paper recently about how wearing polyester face masks, you're breathing in polyester fibres all the time. Oh, gosh. Yeah, the, the thing for me and the, the way that I describe it is it's just making our whole environment into a big plastic soup. And how do you remove something that's that small? It's like trying to remove a, a needle from a haystack. So once it's in the environment and because plastic is so durable and it's been made to be so persistent, it will just stay there for years and years, if not outlive us. In terms of the impacts it causes, I think we're right at the start of some very scary scientific discoveries. Mm, uh, yeah, I think it's absolutely terrifying because when you look at plastic, it's only been around for, what, since the 50s? So um, looking at long-term studies of the potential impacts of accumulating all this plastic in within humans and within the environment yeah i think there could be some very interesting and possibly terrifying results on the on the horizon um so let's let's take it now from from the highest to uh the lowest right down to sea level uh you also have recently done some work on the River Ganges and the abundance and characteristics of microplastics in surface water. Um, so tell us a bit more about this study. It's actually, according to uh, this paper that I'm looking at right here, it's released on the 1st of April, which could explain why we couldn't download it today. <laughs> yeah, I promise it's a real paper. <laughs> 
but I joined a expedition team with National Geographic and it was an amazing team, female led by Jenna Jambeck and Heather Coldway. Wow. We were an international expedition team with lots of scientists from Bangladesh, India, the UK and the US. Um, we went to a major river system to understand how rivers could be a conveyor belt for plastic going out to sea. But we split into three different teams that had three different aims. So we had a socioeconomic team that were looking at people's perception of plastic. Because uh, most importantly, the people that are out there are the ones that can find the best solutions and give the best advice. We had a land-based team that were looking at how plastic is getting from land into the river. And a water-based team, which is the team that I was in, that was looking at plastic in the river, looking at a fishing net, doing some satellite tags of bottles to see how far they traveled. And my role was looking at a whole 3D picture, understanding how much plastic is sinking, how much is floating on the surface, and how much is potentially in our air, similar to the Mount Everest paper. We chose the Ganges River because it's an incredible river with so many different stories and extremely spiritual, where the people that are around the Ganges believe that it flows from a god and it, in some areas, is extremely polluted, but so are rivers in the UK, so are rivers in the US. But this provided us a perfect platform to understand how a major river system could affect plastic and where it's going. So the first paper that I had out was looking at the surface water. And we took samples all the way from where the river meets the ocean in the Bay of Bengal up towards the Himalayas. And we found that plastic increased substantially from source to sea. And we predict that 3 billion microplastics could be put into the ocean every day from the Ganges supporting rivers. Wow. That's wow. almost like uncomprehendable, that amount. Every day. Every day. I had to keep doing the maths. And um, one of the friends who's on the paper as well, he kept doing the maths just to double check, but three billion every day. Wow, that is insanity. And um, what what kind of fibers, or what, sorry, what kind of microplastics were you finding? Um, was it predominantly microfibers? Were, was it smaller microbeads? Was it secondary, primary microplastics? So exactly like you just said, hit the nail on the head. That ninety percent and over of what we found was fibers. Um, again, predicting that most of these come from clothing. We found a few fragments, but the majority was fibres. Wow. See, I think that this brings up a very, very interesting kind of topic around this whole issue of, you know, microplastic and specifically microfiber pollution is that you've got this huge variation in the world in the way that we wash our clothes. And I know, Imi, this is the third paper that we'll be going on to discuss. But, <laughs> you know, without jumping the gun here, it's it, obviously you're finding that an incredible amount of fibers are being released into the ocean from the river Ganges. And I guess, you know, that could be contributed to by the fact that people are literally washing their clothes in the river because that is their washing machine, essentially. Yeah, exactly. Washing your clothes, hand washing your clothes in the river. But even in the Western world, so the UK and the US, when we wash our clothes, they'll go into wastewater that's put into the sewage treatment works. Sometimes these fibers are so small, they can bypass it and go straight into the natural environment. So there's so many different ways 
that plastic can get into rivers. Mm. And once it's in the river, it's literally a conveyor belt for plastic to get out to sea. Mm. And just quickly, you know, what impact, there's obviously high loads of plastic in this river. What impact could it be having on people? Or is it mainly that this could just be a significant source of, of plastic pollution to that ocean region? Yeah, so it's going to be a huge proportion of plastic getting into the ocean. And like we discussed, it just makes it into a big plastic soup. And how do you remove something that's that small? So my concern is that plastic has only been around for the last 100 years. And we're already seeing this terrible effect of potentially one river pushing out 3 billion microplastics into the ocean every day. So what's it going to be like in another 100 years or even another 20 years? It's, it's sometimes hard to comprehend. And the impacts are still yet to be seen. So we know a lot about microplastics being pushed out, but how about their health implications but we also did some research that my friend Sarah Nelms looked at, which is about fishing rope and fishing nets. And her paper was predicting how much this fishing net and fishing rope is going to affect uh, some really special animals that are in the Ganges, such as river dolphins, and um, potentially making them threatened. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. We'd love to also perhaps have her on the podcast as well to talk about her paper. Yeah, definitely. That would be um, really interesting. We must must chat about that afterwards. Um, yeah, it really is worrying to see such high levels, and I can only you know wonder what the implications could be for wildlife. Um, but I also wanted to ask you about the kind of variation that you had um, in your samples between when you took them. So pre monsoon, you had a different level of microplastics that you were finding to post-monsoon. What do you think was driving this? And which one was higher? Yeah, so pre-monsoon and post-monsoon. Post-monsoon is going to have more rain. So more rain is literally going into the river, so it's got a higher flow. We had various different thoughts of what was going to push out more plastic. Um, and what we found in the end is that the post-monsoon had more plastic. We predict it's from the additional rain, the additional rain pushing out potentially more plastic from land. Um, but there's still so much that we need to discover from it. It was one of the first research pieces looking at how a monsoon period can affect plastics into the river. But it also showed me that there's still so much that is yet to be uncovered. Yeah, and I, it, this part particularly really interested me because um, just from, you know, anecdotally seeing, um, having been in it within the Indo-Pacific area in the last few years, having seen what happens during monsoon season in the marine environment at the base of these rivers when a lot of macroplastic, which is what we can really see, um, comes out. It's it's really interesting to see that you do have this variation in terms of pre-monsoon and post-monsoon for microplastics within the river because then it raises the question, well, it, not even the question, they've all gone into the sea. Um, so, yeah, I just find it absolutely nuts. Um, and now let's come on to, well, kind of a solution, but what you've been working on uh, recently um, so you obviously, during your PhD, sat uh, in, in Plymouth in the laboratories studying uh, studying washing machines, I was going to say. Um, <laughs> you sat there washing clothes, um, 
to determine how many microfibers were coming off our clothes. Um, and since then, you have been working on a solution to uh, these countless numbers of microfibers that are making their way into our water systems, into our rivers, wa wastewater treatment plants, um, and of course, the marine environment. Um, would you like to tell us a little bit about uh, this? Yeah, definitely. So I'll rewind it a little bit to the first study that I ever did, which is looking at microbeads and facial scrubs. And this really lit a fire inside me about how research can make a change, even if you consider it to be quite a small research topic. So with this study, we tested six main brand facial scrubs to see how many microbeads they could have in one bottle. And no one had done any research before looking at how many tiny particles there could be. And I used to actually use these facial scrubs and I just didn't even consider that there could be plastic in there. Uh, even when I was told it had, you know, polyethylene in the ingredients, you just don't put two and two together that you could be washing your face with plastic. So I was in the lab until silly o'clock in the morning, extracting all of these microbeads from these bottles, from these facial scrubs. And it was taking me so long because there was so much in there. And rather than it be plastic beads, plastic microbeads that you could see, it was more like a fine powder. We found that 3 million tiny microbeads could be in one bottle. So on a square on your hand, there could be over 10,000. So you could be washing your face with 10,000 tiny plastic particles that would then go down the drain, potentially through the sewage treatment works, and then into our ocean. But the most exciting part about all of this was this research was able to make a change. So it influenced consumers like you and me that we have a really powerful voice and a choice in what we're doing. So when we're in the supermarket and we're buying a facial scrub, we can literally look in the ingredients list. And if it says polyethylene, we don't buy it and we get a natural alternative instead, like something with involving sugar or salt. Then because they were so unpopular, Industry started to voluntarily remove them. They also started to market their facial scrubs as being microbead free. And then after that, uh, government started to listen and they made legislation banning microbeads in their products, which was awesome. So from this paper that I did, you know, at crazy times in the morning, uh, able to make an international change, it, it just really just drove me to see how research can be a real force for change and something very really positive, which led then on to looking at us washing our clothes. So when we wash our clothes and they're swishing and they're swirling around in the washing machine, tiny fibers can come off them, which is a problem because the majority of the clothes that we buy are plastic, such as polyester. I said earlier that my t-shirt, so I'm wearing is actually a polyester t-shirt. I urge all of you when you finish this podcast, go and look in your uh, cupboards and uh, your wardrobes and have a look at the, the labels of your clothes because you'll see that most of it's plastic. And we found that a typical clothes wash could release up to 700,000 fibers, like the microbead beads potentially going down the drain through the sewage stream works and then into our ocean. And that was the end of that paper. And I didn't feel very fulfilled. It felt like I was just more doing a paper saying, brilliant, washing our clothes is a, a problem. And the microbeads one was really exciting because we were able to see how that research can make a change. So then we did another paper on top of the washing machine paper to look at different solutions to see if they could help mitigate the issue. 
So we tested six devices. We didn't invent them. We didn't design them. We actually collaborated with industry, which is really exciting. And we tested three inventions that went in the drum of the washing machine. So thinking about the corable and the guppy bags and three inventions that were aimed to be external to the washing machine or uh, be actually installed into the washing machine itself. We found that there was a large variety on how efficient the products were. They would either try and capture the fibers or mitigate them. But one of the products, something called an ex-filture, was over 80% effective. And it could be the future of how we wash our clothes. Gosh. Wow. That's incredible. You're absolutely trailblazing. I love it that your research has genuinely sort of changed industry, that it's brought in legislation and that it's really helped curb, um, you know, the issue of microbeads. And then obviously all of this work that you've done to kind of identify how many microfibers are being released during washes, although that we might not have a solution yet, is just, just incredible. Thanks. Yeah, sometimes when... You're in the lab and it's you've been doing it for months and I wash a lot of clothes again and again and <laughs> again. And especially in my first research paper looking at the just how many fibers came off your clothes. So the only space that they could fit me in for have a washing machine was kind of like in this dark cupboard. <laughs> I'll show you a picture. Harry had, Potter. Yeah, very much so. I had a stool, a washing machine and all my different clothes that I was testing. And all I, the glamorous I, science life. Oh, I know. I just emerge into coffee break and just down a cup of coffee and then crawl back up <laughs> into your washing cupboard. <laughs> Literally. But then the second paper, we managed to get four washing machines and we were on another oh. floor. So now we have a washing machine lab, um, which looks very peculiar. Uh, <laughs> washing machines all together and some fish tanks that help collect the water um i never thought in my whole career that i'd build a washing machine lab <laughs> but oh, oh was- my god here we are i love here it here we are now <laughs> absolutely love it Emmy. so um these these devices if we are sticking them on washing machines and they are 80 percent effective obviously that's brilliant um what do you see the future of this being do you think it's something that consumers would would be obligated to invest in would it be a voluntary thing or are we looking at a government rollout what would you i can i know what you'd like to see happen but what do you think is actually feasible yes yeah, so this is a hot topic at the moment and we're discussing in a, a parliamentary group about how we could potentially go forward with this and it's similar to the microbeads it's where does this fit in is it the consumer to fork out money for which can seem unfair is it the washing machines that they should put filters in? Even people have suggested having better filtrations on wastewater treatment plants, but they're pretty effective anyway. They can remove 98% of plastic that goes in there, microplastic. But then because there's so much going into the wastewater treatment plants, a huge portion can still go out into the natural environment. I'd say it's going to be a mixture of all three. And even if we can get washing machines to have special filters on that capture the fibers what are we going to do with the fibers afterwards we have to yeah i actually asked you this didn't i and in, in a chat we had the other day i was literally like what are we going to do with them tell me the answer and i guess yeah what, what do we do with them do we put them in the bin yeah well we put them in the bin at least if they're going to landfill they're in a controlled waste environment 
but there are some amazing budding entrepreneurs and inventors that are thinking of what to do with the fluff. Maybe we could use it for insulation and walls. Mm. Um, Another really effective way that we can stop fibers coming off clothing is by designing clothes differently, by designing them so they are modified to just shed less plastic in the first place. So there's so many different solutions and plastic's just really complicated because there's not one answer that will fix everything. Even with clothing that's shedding plastics, we've got potentially filters going into washing machines. We can design clothes differently. We can even just do simple things like washing our clothes less. So there's lots of different elements that need to be brought in. But in my opinion, we've got a solution that's on the table where people have designed some amazing products that can capture or mitigate fiber release. So strike the iron when it's hot and let's try and make a change, even if it's a small one. Definitely, Emmy. I couldn't agree more. And something I also wanted to just draw attention to is that you tested these different filtration methods. And I think your paper offers some really insightful results because unfortunately, I think at the moment, you know, this issue's become a hot topic, but there's an, a bit of greenwashing or maybe exaggeration of, you know, mm. certain brands saying, oh, we're the number one filtration technique by our product and you don't have to worry about microfiber pollution. But as you found, um, some of the products and filters or filter methods that you you tested actually didn't seem to mitigate fibers at all. Yeah, it's a tricky one because sometimes I really think that people are designing their products and designing... <sighs> products inventions to help the environment but if you're finding something's not very effective or in some cases it could be using more plastic or polluting more than it's actually trying to solve and a piece of research that we did explains this really well where it was actually the first research that I set up in my PhD in the last samples that I ever took so it was a three-year experiment and we looked at biodegradable, compostable, and just normal conventional carrier bags. And in proper Blue Peter science, which is my favorite, we <laughs> buried these bags in the soil, we submerged them in the ocean, we left them hanging outside, and we had some controls that were just in the cupboard. We just wanted to see what would happen with these biodegradable, compostable bags disappear. Because when I hear the word biodegradable, I assume it's going to be like a piece of fruit, like a an apple, mm. it will disappear really quickly. But what did we find? Well, the bags that were exposed outside, it, after nine months, completely fragmented into tiny bits, no matter what bag type it was. Doesn't mean it's disappearing. It just means it's going into microplastics. And it was actually just polluting the soil below it. So we removed that. That's because plastic breaks down uh, using a process called photooxidization, where... It's plastic is basically just carbon and hydrogen in a long chain. But photooxidization it introduces an oxygen bond which breaks it in half. So it was just turning into microplastics. The ones in the soil, all of the bags were still there, including the compostable bag. But it was really, no, but it no was, way. Yeah, but it was wow. really. But it was still there. So after three years, all these bags were still there. Wow, in, in that's the, insane. Yeah, and in the ocean. All of the bags, bar the compostable bag, which did disappear, they were all still there as well. And the picture that got a lot of attention was me holding a biodegradable bag that 
had been in the ocean for three years but could still hold a full bag of shopping. <gasps> so oh my products are being advertised as being environmentally friendly, that they will disappear if they go in the natural environment quickly. But actually, we found that they weren't disappearing. And that's an issue because in my eyes, it is greenwashing. Because I did think that these bags would at least lose a lot of strength. But actually, I was finding that the conventional bags, in some cases, were actually weaker than the biodegradable ones. Mm. Oh my so goodness. That's fascinating. And the, so you said that the compostable one was the one that did break down in the ocean. Do you think that was due to, you know, the increased action from waves and wind and, you know, those external forces that this bag possibly didn't have when it was in the soil? Yeah, but maybe more microbes, more things to kind of nibble at it, the, the moisture. Often with compostable and biodegradable products, we're not saying that they're not a solution, but they have to be a solution in a really specific end facility so imagine like a football stadium where you could have biodegradable cups they could all be collected and then they'll go somewhere like an industrial composter that has really high heat really high moisture to allow that product to break down the the thing is with the greenwashing the some biodegradable plastic companies got quite angry at our research (laughs) classic Science versus industry once again. <laughs> yeah, and it kind of makes you feel they were definitely trying to silence our research, and it got it got very nasty and quite personable, especially on Twitter. And you're there trying to think that you're doing something good for the environment, and you're not trying to catch anyone out. We weren't pointing the finger, and we even mm. said in our paper that we're not saying that they're not a solution, but we need to talk about how things should be labelled properly, so consumers yeah. who are getting these products know how to dispose of it. Because if it needs an industrial composter, I haven't got one where I live in Plymouth. So I can't put it in the recycling because it can't be recycled. So then does it just go in the normal waste where it's just going to behave like a normal plastic? Or do I send it to my nearest industrial composter, which I think is Gloucester? Do I I post it with a stamp? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. And then it all gets a bit ridiculous, doesn't it? I think oh. this just like sheds a light on how poor our waste management processes are and how, you know, these solutions or apparent solutions are just being thrust out there and the wealth of greenwashing behind it is just insane when actually, you know, your research is showing that this is possibly just as as bad if these, you know, biodegradable plastics are not ending up in the right facilities where they can actually be composted. Yeah, but then also on that, even though throwing stuff into landfill, it seems horrendous, and it is, but at least it's going into like a, a closed environment. Uh, what really opened my eyes is when we were in India and Bangladesh on the Ganges trip, a lot of the communities we went to didn't have waste management facilities at all. We actually went to a community that was supplied bins by their, their government, by their council, but wow. the government and council hadn't decided how they were going to pick the bins up. They literally just supplied bins. So what the community did, because they didn't have a landfill site, they didn't have anyone collecting their rubbish, they would put all their rubbish in the bin and then they would throw it into the river to get <laughs> of the, the waste. 
And to no fault of their own, they just don't have an option of where they can put this waste. It's either make their own unmanaged landfill sites or put it into the river. Then it taught me that being plastics and waste is becoming such a, a finger pointing culture between countries and often industry yeah. and you know industry pointing the finger at us saying your research is bad, we don't like you, shining a light on biodegradable plastics saying they're not potentially good in the natural environment. Rather than being finger pointy, we should be more hand-holding and saying, okay, this is how we can make it better. Have you ever tried this? Ah, this really worked for us. Have a go at this. Um, Because it's a problem we all share. So it's a problem we should all fix together. I love that. Emmy, you're so inspiring. I love this. Honestly, I'm just like, you go, girl. (laughs) It's like if you could get anyone to put a positive spin on a problem that is literally ubiquitous (laughs) across the planet and is wrecking havoc in so many different ecosystems, it's Imogen Napa. Um, (laughs) Real fan club here. Imi, I, um, I think that's probably almost all we have time for today would you like to add any more nuggets of wisdom or um good good vibes onto the end of this podcast yeah so something that's always stuck in my head and i know it's a cliche but making a small difference can have a huge impact so even when you're looking at which facial scrub to get you could think ocean in the moment and decide to get a natural product instead that could stop 3 million tiny microplastic beads potentially entering the environment. And if you're in the park or in the street or in the beach and you see some litter, pick it up. Because if we don't pick it up, then it's going to just stay as waste. And if everyone in the world just picked up a piece of litter, the world would be a much cleaner place. Wow. Love it. Yep. That's a brilliant way to end it. And completely agree. If everyone just picked up one bit of plastic, the difference that that could make would be phenomenal. Exactly. Keeps it out of a turtle's stomach, a bird's stomach, a squirrel's stomach, you know, um, and keeps it from obviously fragmenting into these tiny microplastics and even nanoplastics in in the natural environment. Um, Imi, where can people find out more about you and your research uh, if if they would like to know more? So always feel free to send me uh, an email. Uh, always happy to chat plastics if you have any questions. And my social media is just at Imogenapa. So message me on there as well. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It was an absolute pleasure as always. Uh, you must come back whenever you've done your next amazing paper. I don't know where you could go after Everest, but uh, maybe the Mariana <laughs> Trench. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. Really enjoyed it.